Morning. All right, so if we were in Nagi right now, um, and we were doing church this morning, I guess we don't do church. That's an incorrect statement, but uh, forgive me. If we were having a believers meeting, we'd all be sitting on the floor, and we'd be barefoot, and there would be several babies crying, and occasionally we'd have a pig that would run, you know, through the meeting or something like that. Um, but uh, do you guys want to see where we live? All right, I got a picture this morning to show you where we live here. We don't have these either in Nagi, so if I use it wrong, I don't, you know, what I'm doing. All right, so this is, uh, this is, the, this is our village. This is where we live. Um, that little blob right there, yeah, I don't know if you could see that. That's our house. And uh, so we're surrounded by the jungle. And so if you wanted to visit us, you would have to, the closest town is about four and a half day hike uh, from our village. And so we travel in and out by a um, by this little airstrip, well, not by the airstrip, by a plane. This is a little cleared out spot. It takes us in and out. It's a nine-seater plane. That's how we get our supplies. So you can pray for my wife. She has to do, she has to grocery shop or plan for three or four months at a time. So she is amazing. And if she forgets something, we don't get to have it for three or four months, which is a bummer. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's where we live. Here's a, got a picture here of the church. Here's the church. Well, okay, I got to clarify. Not everyone in this picture is a believer, but you can't have a group picture and not invite everybody. I thought about, you know, asking people, hey, can you guys stand over here and cropping them out later? But anyway, so a good number of these people, I would say probably over half of the people in this picture are believers. Um, I know, praise God, yeah? The other... um, how do I say this? The other non-Papuan people there, um, those are our co-workers. There's another family in the village. They have uh, uh, four kids, and there's also two single ladies that we, we work with. And outside of that, there's no other Westerners that we live with. Um, I, I, I love sharing how that uh, one of the coolest things that we ever got to be a part of is we actually got to be there um, when the church was born, when they got to hear the gospel for the first time. But the other thing that was really, really exciting is about six months later, there's this guy named Andreas, and he uh, wrote the first um, Nagi praise song. And we got, to, we got to be a part of that. We got to be there when God's name was praised for the first time in the history of the world in the Nagi language. That's pretty stinking awesome. And so I thought what I'd do this morning is since last week, Chris uh, set a precedence. Um, it's a new thing here where the pastors are actually sing to you. Um, I thought maybe I would sing that song for you. Um, and maybe I'll translate it first. It's, uh, um, Jesus is the only truth. You're going to hear the word awosok uh, over and over again. Jesus is the only truth. He has determined a day. The day that he has determined is, is, is not far from now, that he is coming again. It says, he is the door. Or it is true. He is the door. It is true. He is our... Um, our, our trail. It is true. It is true. He is our Lord. All right. So, Yesu se wimki awoso ki kada egin and dinkinge dinkinge gimane vin vin manik do onek nuk dinkinge awoso emanuk durib awoso emanuk optogwab awoso awoso neman emanuk awogi. All right. There it is. All right, so um, I want to tell you more about the Nagi, but we're going to run out of time, so we have to keep moving forward here. All right, so um, 
I, I would love in the future to be able to do to 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 have a meeting and we can all get together and uh, invite you guys to share more stories with that. So stay tuned. We'll have something for you in the future there. But for now, we need to get back to our study in Second Corinthians. But before we get there, if you remember last week, if you have your Bibles, you can actually go ahead and open up to Second Corinthians. Um, if you remember last week, uh, Chris talked about how in the future. Every human being is going to stand before God and give an account for how they live, whether good or bad. And at that moment, God is going to separate the believers from the unbelievers. And as I was preparing for this week, I, it took me back to when we taught that same truth to the Nagi. Now, we didn't teach them from 2 Corinthians because, well, 2 Corinthians hasn't been translated yet. That's something to keep in mind, actually, this morning as we study that there are people in the world that don't have what you're holding right now. Um, so we, we taught them how, you know, uh, we taught them from Revelation chapter 20, how that God's got this, you know, he's got these books and it's a record of everything we've ever done and all the good, all the bad that we've ever done. He's written there. I remember the Nagi, they would do their little silent, um, silent whistles where they would suck in. They'd go, and they, they do that when you say something like really like impactful, like, like almost like really like, oh, you know, and then we said like, he wrote this down, including all of your bad, all of, even all of your bad thoughts. It's there. He has a record of it. And it's like fear, like coming over them. Like, that means he's not going to forget. <laughs> but then we told him how there's this other book. And it's just one. It's called the Book of Life. And this is a record of all those who are his. And everyone who have said, Awosok, everyone has said to Jesus, it is true regarding who he is and what he's done. He writes their name down in this book and he doesn't erase it. And this was significant to them because they didn't come from, uh, uh, traditionally they didn't have a written language. So when their language uh, was written down for the first time, or where they began to introduce to any kind of written language, it was so official, it was so important, it was so set in stone. And to say that God has written the names of those who have believed in him down in this book, and it will not be erased, man, it was so neat to see that. I remember out of that one guy, as he was hearing about it for the first time, uh, his eyes, you know, kind of welling up with tears because of fear. And he said at the end of the meeting, he comes up, and we had this, you know, books laid out and it was as a, to illustrate the point. And he said, how do I get the bad erased out of that book? And how do I get my name written in that book? <laughs> and uh, it was about a year later, a guy's named Frankie, he came to faith in Christ. So, um, so this morning, I want to take you where we took them. We started from Genesis 1-1, laying a foundation, who is God, who is man, leading up to the death, burial, and resurrection, and then we completed the story for them. We brought them all the way to where the story of the Bible is going, and that's what I want to do with you this morning. I told you to open up to 2 Corinthians. I actually lied. That was premature. We're going to look at, actually, um, uh, Revelations 21, and I'll read it for you. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death 
shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who, sit, uh, he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Amen. This is a big part of what we're going to be talking about this morning as we go uh, second, second Corinthians, is that this is the end of the story. That ultimately, in the end, God is going to set everything right in this world, and we are going to be a part of new creation. But here's the amazing thing that we're going to talk about this morning, is that future heavenly scene, I say heavenly, it's actually here, that future place or existence where God makes everything new is actually happening. It's actually begun in the heart of God's people. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 5 now. 517, it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is right now, today, a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, this sounds a whole lot like the verses we just read in Revelations. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and we're no more. Verse 4, the former things have passed away. Verse 5, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And the amazing thing is that God, through the transforming work that he does on the inside of his people, is beginning this. It's happening right now. This future place that we're going to be a part of is happening in the heart of God's people. It's not something that you may have felt. It's not something you may have realized even happened to you. But if you are a believer in Christ, the moment you put your trust in who he was and what he did, he began this work on the inside of you. He, he, like in original creation, he spoke something into being that didn't exist before. He caused something to happen in your heart that wasn't there before. This new creation that happens in us was actually foretold in the Old Testament. In uh, Ezekiel um, 36, Ezekiel 36, verses 27, uh, 26, 27, he says, I will give you a new heart and put my spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from you, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my rules. This inward heart transformation is not something that we did. It's something that God did in us that he actually gave us a new heart. He put inside of us a new set of desires that were like his desires. And not only that, he put inside of us his spirit. I mean, the verse that we read in Revelation, what did it say? And the dwelling place of God is with man. Today, right now, where's the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit? It is in the hearts of his people. This is incredible. And in this way, we are... What God is doing in his people, in our hearts, is this foreshadowing, this, uh, some people call it the inauguration of new creation, that we both are up the beginning of it, and we both picture what it's going to be like. And this is an incredible privilege that we get to be a part of. So let's bring these verses that we just talked about, this, this verse um, about being new in Christ, let's bring it back into the troubled world of 2 Corinthians. And if you remember, uh, Paul is, 
uh, here, you know, he's preaching a message about new creation, about who Jesus is, about how we can be saved through Christ. Uh, But the question comes up about Paul here is a little bit of a question of the legitimacy of his ministry. So in the minds of the Corinthians, it's kind of like, Paul, if you really are a messenger of God, then why is your life so filled with what looks like tragedy. <laughs> I mean, you've been beaten up so many times, you can't remember how many times you've been beaten up. That could be because of how many times you've been beaten up. But I would never go fishing with you because you get shipwrecked. Like, you, you would think if you were really God's messenger, that God would have at least given you a gift to be a good public speaker. I mean, you, you admit yourself, you're not a good public speaker, yet you're telling us that you're God's representative? I don't know. You see, what was happening was Paul was getting compared to these new teachers. And these new teachers, they looked good on the outside. He called them those who boast about outward appearances and not about what is in the heart. You see, these new teachers, they were sort of refined. They were... Um, prosperous, they were skilled, they, uh, they had money, people liked them, they were gifted public speakers, they had these letters of um, recommendation that showed, you know, they were important people. Uh, and the Corinthians liked them. And everything on the outside, on the outside of these new teachers, it really did look like they were in God's favor, that God was blessing them and God was blessing their ministry. The Corinthian church, you see, they were wrapped up in this worldview that said that good things happen to those who are in God's favor and bad things happen to those who are not in God's favor. It's actually not unique to them. In fact, the Nagi lived very much like this, at least traditionally, before they had the gospel. Um, Everything they did revolved around the spirit world, okay? So, and it was all about appeasing the spirit world or not offending the spirits around them. So things like sickness, death, uh, misfortune, uh, your, gardening fa- uh, your garden to, to not grow or to fail, those things didn't just happen. They were the result of offending some sort of spirit. For example, if they want to grow a garden, you would, if, if you had a newborn baby, you would not be allowed to grow a garden because this, for whatever reason, the spirits in the ground would be offended that you just had a brand new baby and now you're working a garden. It's going to make your kids sick. And so everything they did or the Nagi did was revolved on this idea of I don't want to offend the spirits. And so I need to be careful in what I do so I don't offend them so that life will go well for me. And this is actually not unique to them. Historically, if you look at ancient cultures, there's always been this idea that prosperity is as a sign of divine blessing. And that's actually the predominant view in the Old Testament. Uh, if you look at, that's why Job was, you know, was so shaking. And that's why his comforters were, were essentially like, Job, you must have done something wrong for all of this stuff to be happening to you. So they're looking at Paul's, Paul and his sufferings, and they're looking at these other, you know, teachers, and they look so polished, and they're prospering, and they're saying, they're coming to the conclusion, well, Paul must not really be God's messenger. You see, what they had done is they'd taken their traditional views about life, their Epicureanism, that we studied about how that, you know, their well-being, we want things to go well for us, there's an avoidance of pain, they're taking those traditional beliefs, 
And then they're taking Christianity, they're putting them all in one big pot, they're stirring it up, and there out comes this version of Christianity that doesn't have any room for suffering. It doesn't have any room for pain. And it's in that way, they're recreating something new there. And uh, I think this is a good place to remind us, like we started in this study, that we're, what is it, uh, we're, they are us and we are them. And man, we do the same thing. Many of us, we want a Christianity that doesn't involve suffering, that doesn't involve pain. Give me Jesus, but don't give me any pain. And so what Paul does is he actually points back to Jesus. In verses 14 and 15, he says this, For the love of Christ controls us. And let me just stop there. Where was the love of Christ demonstrated? Where was the love of Christ revealed? It was at the cross. It was in his suffering and his dying that the love of Christ was revealed. And that's what Paul said. That's what drives me. That's what motivates me. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, from a, Paul is pointing out, hey guys, originally we got it wrong when it came to Jesus. When Jesus suffered and died, we thought that that was actually a curse from God. We thought that surely this bad that is happening to Jesus is because he is outside of God's favor. But we got it totally wrong. From a human perspective, it looked as if God was disappointed, disapproving of Jesus. In uh, Isaiah 53, I don't have a slide for you, so I'll just read it for you. Isaiah 53 talking about prophesying about this future coming, this future suffering servant. It says, Isaiah 53, verse 2, it says, we're talking about Jesus. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Nothing, there's nothing outwardly about him that was impressive. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. In verse 4, he says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Paul is saying, man, when we looked at Jesus and we saw what he experienced, our assumption was he is being cursed by God, that he is outside of the favor of God, and that is why he is dying on the cross. And what Paul is pointing out is we got it totally wrong. We got it totally wrong. And in fact, the resurrection proved that we got it wrong. The resurrection proved that Jesus had the approval of God. And that's what changed Paul's mind about Jesus. And because of that, this redefines suffering. That suffering is not the result, not necessarily the result of divine disapproval. And more than that, there's a real normalness to it that we'll look at as we begin to follow Jesus I think it's amazing if you look at 14 and 15 there, what he's pointing out that Jesus' death, his suffering was the means in which he saved us. But also we died with him and we were raised with him. And now in this newness of life, in this new creation life that we have, we're not to be living for ourselves but living for him. That he, his model or his death actually became the model for our life. And as we look to follow Jesus... 
he at times leads us into difficult things, hard things. I'll just use us for an example. We want to we wanna follow our family and I. We want to follow Jesus, right? We want to obey God's word. Well, as we've studied God's word and we've seen, okay, Jesus, God has a heart for the world. That God has a desire for his word to go to every person on the planet, every people group, that he would be known in every corner of the world. We see that clearly. Well, okay, I, I want to I be a part of what you're doing, Jesus. What would you have me do? And for me, having the knowledge of his word and knowing that there are people, like the people groups laid out here on the floor for you, that they don't have God's word. And so for me, my response in service to God is, okay, God, I want to I be a part of taking your word to them. You see, it's not that I'm looking for suffering, but in looking to follow Jesus, in looking to bring people like this, God's word, it means taking on and encountering suffering. For us, there's the difficult process of learning language. In that way, we're, we're suffering. Sometimes the Nagi don't always treat us the way that we would like. And so in that way, we are Suffering. There's a separation from our, our family here. There's a separation from in and out for crying out loud. There's a, there's, a, there's a suffering there, you know. But it's not that we're looking for the suffering. It's that we're looking to follow Jesus. And he, as our model, at times leads us into very difficult thing, things. And there's a normalness to this. It's not strange. It's not weird. So Paul continues this line of thinking here in verses 18 through 21, and in 18, um, not 18 and 9, but 18 and uh, 19, he says this, all of this is from God, this new creation, this thing that Jesus did for us is all from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Where he's going with this is the same idea that through the sufferings of Jesus, he brought up, ultimately brings about new creation, which begins in our heart. But he, the first thing is to remove the obstacle of sin, to bring about peace between God and humanity. If, if the dwelling place of God is going to be in the hearts of men, well, the sin issue has to be uh, dealt with. And what Paul is going here, what Paul is getting at here, is that in the same way that God brought about new creation, or the same way, the same idea that we've been talking about is he did this through suffering. He did this through his death. It's important to note here that uh, reconciliation or peace with God is an impossible human undertaking. You cannot make yourself right with God. Or make peace with uh, make peace with God. Actually, it's it's common. People say, "Oh, I'm so glad before he died, he made his peace with God." That's totally inconsistent with the message of the Bible. You see, we don't make peace with God. God, through His Son Jesus, has made has uh, brought about peace, and He has reconciled us to Himself. It's not that we've reconciled us ourselves to God; it's that He's reconciled us to back to Himself. Um, this is illustrated, I think, beautifully in the opening story of the Bible. See, in the opening story of the Bible, you have a perfect God and a perfect world, and you have God who set Adam and Eve in this perfect, ideal setting. Uh, he gave them a world full of yeses and only one no. And what did they do? Well, we know the story is that they rebelled against him. They said, no, we want to do things our way. 
And in that moment, they broke peace. There was no longer peace between God and humanity. And I just think this is amazing how the first response that they had, well, the first response they had is to recognize that they were naked. The second response is, I got to cover this up. And so I think it's amazing that they go, the Bible says they go out and they try to gather, they don't try, they gather together for themselves fig leaves and they sew together to cover themselves. The picture there is that through human effort, they were trying to cover their embarrassment, their shame, their sin, and in a way, make peace with God. And so what does God do? When God shows up on the scene, he completely rejects their fig leaf covering. I just want to point out that their fig leaf covering is not unique to them. We do the same thing, don't we? I don't want anybody to see that I've, I've got issues, I've got struggles, I've got problems. I've got, I got to cover it up. I don't want anybody to see that my family life is, is messed up. I've got to cover that up. I don't want anybody to know about that. I've got to make sure the outside looks really good. But yet God knows on the inside things aren't right. And in a weird way, it's almost as if we're striving through our good works to cover up the sin that we've done. We're hoping that somehow, you know, the idea that our good will outweigh the bad, in that way we can cover up or make up for our wrong. And God is saying, and God will absolutely reject that, just like he rejected Adam and Eve's fig leaf covering. So God rejects their covering, but then... He also makes a promise that one day there would be one who would come and he would fix the problem. He would bring peace back between God and humanity. And spoiler alert, we know he's talking about Jesus. The next thing he does is he graphically illustrates how Jesus would bring um, about peace between God and humanity. God takes an innocent animal, didn't do anything. He just takes it and he kills it. This is the first death. He, he, he kills it, and then he skins that animal, and he creates for Adam and Eve a new kind of covering to cover their nakedness, to cover their shame. And don't miss this, guys, that in the story, if God was going to cover them with a the new covering, it meant that the old covering would first have to be taken off. And in this case, they would literally be standing there naked. Picturing this is, exact, this is who I am and this is what I've done. And then God would provide a sufficient covering. And in, uh, uh, and in verse 21, Paul brings, us, uh, brings up this huge point here. He says, for our sake, he, that's God, made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. In the same way that this animal that God killed this animal in Adam and Eve's place, God took all of our sin and he put it on Jesus. And he died, he suffered in our place. But it doesn't end there. It says he did this so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, the story doesn't end with Jesus dying for our sins and the, in the forgiveness of our sins, but now as believers, we're actually clothed in the righteousness of God. We're clothed in Jesus. And this is just like what God did in the Old Testament. He clothed them in the same way we have been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. And what does that mean? Well, this becomes the basis on which 
we interact with God. That God doesn't say, it doesn't view us anymore and say, hey, you're a sinner, you're strange from me. But he says, no, you're my child. In the same way that I accept Jesus, I accept you. In the same way that I love Jesus, I love you. Because you're mine. We can be together because you're now covered in my righteousness. And all of this was brought about by the suffering of Jesus. And guys, don't miss this. I think this is an incredible truth here. Is that God, having clothed us in this free righteousness, is free to us, it wasn't free to Jesus, but in this free righteousness, okay, has now said, okay, now that I've clothed you, I've made you right with me, I have a job for you. I have, a, I have a responsibility that I'm, I'm handing to you. You see, there's some people, they don't know about the work of Jesus, and I want you to be the, the means in which they know about it. I want you to be the means in which they come to know about the great work that Jesus has accomplished on their behalf. And so what this means is that this righteousness that I've clothed you in, I'm going to bring it into a practical reality in your life so that you begin to actually look like Jesus. So you're not just telling people about who Jesus is. You're actually showing them because you're becoming like Jesus. And if you're becoming like Jesus, then at times I'm going to let you, okay, I'm going to let you share in the same sufferings that Jesus shared in. But hang in there, because if you suffer with Jesus, I will also glorify you with Jesus. And when you stand there, when it's all said and done, and you're with me, and you look back on the sufferings that you encountered for my namesake, you will say, man, the glory that I am standing in that has been revealed to me now, it doesn't, it pales in comparison to what I am in now, what I'm enjoying now. So, I look at uh, our life there in the village, and I have to say, if it wasn't for the truth, the, re the reality of this future that we have in new creation, we would not be there. We would not endure the difficulties that we do if there wasn't something more than just now, than just here. And if there is nothing more, if all there is is right now, then we are absolutely wasting our lives you know there's only five, 600 Nagi speakers in the entire world? I can't get a job because, because I know Nagi. Like, no one's going to hire me. Nobody's impressed that I can speak a language that only five or 600 people in the world know. They might be impressed, but they're not going to hire me. What I'm saying is, is that, that sacrifice, that life that we are giving it's because we're looking to, not this world, but for the one to come. And the promise that Jesus said if we suffer with him, we'll also share in his glory. And so in this way, there's absolutely a normalness to the suffering that we experience in this life as we follow Jesus. In verse 20, he says this, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The reason why Paul is tying himself so closely with the message of Jesus is because he's saying, I I'm his representative. In other words, what I'm saying about him represents him and the way my life is lived 
the difficulties that I'm encountering are not because of God's disapproval of me. It's actually because I'm following in the footsteps of Jesus. And he's pointing out here to the Corinthians is that your real problem is not really with me and my sufferings. Your real problem is you wanted Jesus with no sufferings. Your real problem is you want a different kind of Jesus. You want a different kind of message. So in uh, verse, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, he closes with this, making an appeal. He says, working together with God then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. In other words, don't just hear this message about reconciliation and then leave it at that. Don't walk away from this message. Believe this message. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. I think absolutely Paul knew that there were some there in, in Corinth who the reason why they were so attracted to these outward appearance of these teachers is because there, there was never this inworking of the Spirit of God. There was, they were never given a new heart. They, they were never reconciled to God. Not all of them, but some. And so here he is making this appeal. Believe this message. In the same way, I want to finish up our time this way. You cannot fix yourself. None of us can. You, you cannot change your heart. You cannot earn the forgiveness that God offers. You, you cannot. There's nothing that you can do. To do so is really just another form of making fig leaves to try to cover it up. And in the end, God will reject that. But on the flip side, both forgiveness and a new heart are freely offered in Jesus. But this offering, it comes only when we first remove the old fig coverings and we say, God, I I can't. I cannot, but you can. There's a faith that leaves dependence on us and moves to Jesus where we're trusting in what he did, that his work, his death was enough for us. And when we do that, he promises to give us a new heart and to change us from the inside out. I just want to encourage you this morning um, as we close. um, Man, do not wait. Respond to what you know God has done for you. That's a, a closing word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for what you've, what you've done for us. I thank you for the amazing story of how you and you fought after us. You came after us. You did what we could never do on our own. You freely offer us forgiveness in the person of Jesus. Lord Jesus, we praise you for that. God, I just pray that if there's someone today who has not been reconciled with you, there's no peace today between you and them. God, I pray that today would be the day, Jesus. I pray that today their eyes would be open and they would see you for who you are. They would see what you've done for them, how you brought about reconciliation for them. 
God, and I pray that they would believe that and they would give themselves over to this great Savior, Jesus. Father God, thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.